Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everyone, I'm Meg Teets and this is Sorta Awesome. Hello and welcome back, Awesomes. You are listening to the show that is all about helping you be smart, strong, and social. We are in your earbuds every single week with all the awesome that you need to know. And you can also find us on Instagram at Sorta Awesome Show or over on Facebook in our Sorta Awesome Hangout group. This is episode 204 of Sorta Awesome, and we hope that this summer is really shaping up to be one of your best summers yet. We are continuing our Sorta Awesome Stories series today, and I can't wait for you to meet today's Superstar Awesome and hear her story of how a surprise health diagnosis in one of her pregnancies really changed everything for their family. But first, I wanted to give you a quick reminder that if you have not yet followed us over on Instagram, we would love to have you over there. We always update when we drop new episodes of Sorta Awesome. And we try to pop into your Instagram feed every now and again with news about the show, sometimes just funny memes, sometimes encouraging reminders about how awesome you are. So if you're on Instagram, but you haven't connected with us over there, go ahead and look us up right now. You can find us over there at Sorta Awesome Show. Well, I'm so excited to introduce this week's Superstar Awesome to you. Remember that our Superstar Awesomes are our awesomes who support the show through Patreon at $5 a month, and we are featuring their stories all throughout this summer. So in today's story, you're going to hear about how an unexpected diagnosis in pregnancy came for one of her children and the things that she has really learned from that moment forward. Frances Noyd is a wife and a mom of four, age seven and under. She has been with her husband for 13 years, married for almost nine years. Her husband is a pastor in Toronto, Canada, and they are passionate about the community that they serve there. Frances currently homeschools and does virtual assistant work in her spare moments. She loves to read, to knit, to listen to podcasts while she cooks and cleans. She's all about watching movies or shows with her husband after a busy day. She's also, just so you know, a Myers-Briggs ISFP and an Enneagram 6. So Frances, welcome to Sorta Awesome. Thanks, Meg. I'm so happy to be here. I have to say, I was looking back through our (laughs) archives. You are one of our very few international awesomes to come to the show. I actually think so far it's just you and Sarah Bessie who have repped Canada on air for us. (laughs) 
That is really good company to be in. So thank you. Yes, you're definitely keeping good company there. I also have to tell you that I love how many of our superstars, when they have kind of written up their bios to be shared on the show, have been sure to add personality types. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so known and seen because you all know that I need that information. (laughs) Yes. Well, I think it's very important too and helpful. It really is. And now that I know your types, I will never forget them. They're like, (laughs) they're in my personality type spreadsheet in my brain. And I will always remember that now. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Well, we are going to get to Francis's story here in just a minute. It's really powerful, so touching. And I know there's going to be something in it for every one of you awesomes who are listening. So we're going to get to that in just a few minutes. But first, let's go ahead and start this show the way we always do with our awesomes of the week. This is that moment in the show where we stop and tell you about, well, whatever's awesome in life right now, whether it's books or TV shows, movies, podcasts, products, whatever it is that's making life just a little bit more sparkly and fun these days. So Francis, I can't wait to hear what you brought for the show. Thanks, Meg. I have a free app that I'd like to share with the awesomes today. It's called the Pray As You Go app. And I've just discovered it in the last few weeks or so. And Prayer is something that I find so hard to fit into my day sometimes because I'm like, oh, yes, I'll pray for that person or I'll do this or it's not like a thing that I can check off my list really easily. Yes. And so this app has really helped me. First of all, it's on my home screen, so I see it and it reminds me. And then also it's just such a calming and centering app to use. I've tried some of the Headspace apps, which have also been great for meditation and just having quiet or intentional moments of solitude. Mm -hmm. But I really loved the focus that the Pray As You Go app has. And it's not a sermon or a thought for the day. It has music. And I've heard everything from Gregorian chants to gospel music that opens it up. And then they read the scripture twice and also just have questions to leave you with. So it's very contemplative. In a busy day with four kids, even if I don't do it first thing in the morning, it's just a few minutes of centering, quiet, and just brings some peace into my life. I love it. I've talked about on the show, the work that Pray As You Go, the work that they do. And I so agree with you that one of the best things is it's not really about like someone else's interpretation or application of a passage of scripture. It really invites you yourself to interact with it. Mm -hmm. And I just really super love that. And they really build in a lot of space for you to really think. And if you feel moved to pray as you go. Then you can do that, or you can really just sit and contemplate and think about, you know, how things might apply. It may trigger a memory or it may trigger some new thoughts that you hadn't had about a particular passage of scripture. I mean, I just think they do such amazing work. Absolutely. I totally agree. So yes, that is the Pray As You Go app. We will definitely have a link in the show notes for you all who want to check it out. My awesome of the week this week, I'm very excited to share with you all awesomes who are listening and also with you, Francis, because I know you're a big reader. This is a brand new release from my friend, Sean Smucker. The novel is called, it's a fiction work. It's called Light from Distant Stars. And I got advanced view copy of this book. Sean is one of those internet friends whom I feel like I know him really well, but we have never actually met. <laughs> But he has written several books, probably most notably in the fiction realm. You may remember he wrote the young adult two-parter series, The Day the Angels Fell and its sequel, The Edge of Over There, which are both fantastic YA books. 
He also has a nonfiction book that came out, I think, last year called Once We Were Strangers. It's about his friendship with a Syrian refugee. So, you know, I loved that one. But Sean and I have never met, but he's always so gracious and kind to send me advanced copies of his books. So this showed up for me recently, Light from Distant Stars. I knew he was working on a big, like sort of sweeping family drama. And the reason I knew that is we're friends on Facebook and sometimes he'll put out a call to friends on Facebook to be like, I'm building my playlist for writing this novel. You know, what do you have in the genre of this? So, you know, how I am about music. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always trying to boss people around with musical choices. So anyway, he was so kind to send me this review copy. So I have to tell you all, Light from Distant Stars, it is awesome. It tells the story of Cohen Marah. That's our protagonist. The story actually starts with Cohen stepping over his father's body. And so from the very first few paragraphs, we start getting a lot of formation about Cohen's childhood as a preacher's son. His growing up years, they were difficult and painful in a lot of ways. And it all culminates with Cohen, our protagonist, wondering if he had actually killed his father. So it lived up to what Sean, I think, envisioned for this book. It is a sprawling and epic family drama, but there's also some suspense in there. There's some supernatural aspects. Again, something I love. And, you know, I'm always going to say yes to that. (laughs) That sounds so good. Yes. It has a really strong heartbeat of like faith and doubt coming to terms with your childhood, the father-son dynamic. Gosh, there's just so much in it. It's a really epic story. It has such strong character development. Sean's writing is really incredibly compelling. He really brings you right into the moment with the character. There's tons of detail. And I think he does a great job in this novel. Listen, this is not a short read. It's almost 400 pages long. So like I said, it's a big one. It's an epic. But even though he covers so much ground in this, I think he does a really good job pacing it out. So you have a lot of things happening in the present action that build in that suspense. But there's also a lot of revisiting Cohen's memories from his childhood. So I just think he did a great job. I do think it is such a great summer read. It's really not going to be like your light and beachy read (laughs) because it deals with a lot of family stuff in it. But at the same time, sometimes over the summer, that's when you have time to like really dig into a book that's going to take you on a journey. And so if you are up for that for your summer reading, I highly recommend Sean Smucker's Light from Distant Stars. So those are our awesomes of the week. As you know, we always invite you to share what's awesome in your life. If you haven't already, please do find us on Instagram because every Friday morning we have our awesome of the week discussion going on over there. And of course, we do this in our sort of awesome hangout group where every Friday we're talking about what is awesome in life for us right now. So if you haven't joined us on Facebook, you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash sort of awesome hangout. All right, Francis, this is it. You're kind of in the hot seat. I hope it doesn't feel too hot. (laughs) I thought before we really dig into some of the turns that your story has taken, especially with your family through the years, I thought we could maybe back up a little bit and just kind of start with your story generally. Like, where did you grow up and how did you find your way into married life, family life? How did you find yourself where you are now? So let's kind of back up a little bit and you start us wherever you want to get us started. Okay. So I've lived in the greater Toronto area for most of my life. My parents did immigrate to Canada when I was two from England. I do feel very British, but (laughs) I've lived in Canada. 
almost all my life. I'm the firstborn daughter and granddaughter on both of my family's side. I have two younger brothers. My parents separated when I was six, but officially divorced about 10 years after that. I went to public school, a liberal arts high school with a focus Mm -hmm. in music. In about grade 10, I started to make my faith my own. My mom had taken us to church, the same church that whole time. And my faith started to become my own. And I started to become more involved in our youth ministry, which then led me to go to a Christian non-denominational university in Toronto. I graduated there in 2010 with a Bachelor of Religious Education. My husband was a year ahead of me at the school, at university, but we did know each other before that. So we started dating in 2006 and then were married in the fall of 2010. And at the time we got married, my husband was just the new youth pastor at this great church in Toronto where we grew our family. And I was working in administration at a luxury oh, car wow. dealership. <laughs> but I only worked there for like two years or actually not even that long, maybe a year and a half. Interesting. Okay. That was, I was not expecting that part of your story. <laughs> We got pregnant right away with our first and then had our daughter in July of 2011. And then we had a son in January of 2014, another son in November of 2015. And then our youngest little boy was born in July 2017. My husband started his Master's of Divinity the fall before our second child was born. And I've been home with our daughter ever since my maternity leave ended. And I've stayed home as our family has grown. We were at the same church my husband was the youth pastor at up until just before our fourth child was born, which is when he finished his master's and our time at the church had amicably come to an end. We're still in Toronto in ministry closer to the downtown core, and we're really passionate about the community we're in. And I'm still homeschooling our kids for now. So great. So you are like really Toronto, basically almost born and bred. Tell me some of your favorite things about Toronto. I feel like we never really get to highlight our awesomes who live outside of the U.S. borders. So I would love to hear some of your favorite things about being in Toronto. Well, growing up, I never would have said that I would have loved the city or living in the city. I always imagined being sort of country or suburban. But as I've gotten older, we would just really love the city. I love how diverse it is. Toronto is divided into so many little pockets. Mm. Like we have a little Italy and a Chinatown and Koreatown. We have a small Tibetan community at downtown. There's just so much diversity. And I just love that about the city. There's lots to do. It is expensive. So I don't love that. (laughs) But other things, there's so many parks. I've really loved living in Toronto. I love hearing that. I don't know much about Toronto. I mean, I'm a typical American and an Okie at that. (laughs) But one of the things that I always hear people talking about celebrating, kind of bragging on Toronto for is the diversity component that you were just talking Mm -hmm. about, that there's just such a great blending of cultures there. And because of that blending of cultures, you really get to experience people in all kinds of contexts in life. So that must be really incredible. It is. I love it. Well, let's kind of move into the heart of your story. As we put out the call to our superstars, we asked our superstars if, you know, if they wanted to share their story, Like what is kind of a central part of the story that something that has happened in their lives that they felt like would be valuable to share with our bigger, awesome community? So as I alluded to in the beginning of this episode, in one of your pregnancies, you came to a point where you got a diagnosis that was really quite unexpected. So I was wondering if you could take us back in time to that moment and just walk us through what happened during that time in your life. 
In Canada, you can either have an OBGYN or a midwife as part of our health coverage. And so with our three boys, I've had midwives. In that, I also declined to have the early screening around 13 weeks. With my daughter, I had had an OB and we received a false positive on some tests. Mm. And so I just decided that it wasn't worth the stress that that had caused and that if anything was going to show up, we would be doing the 20-week anatomy scan and it would come up then and that would give us enough time rather than having the stress earlier. Sure, I totally get it. Yes. And so with our fourth baby at the 20-week scan, which was about two years ago this past spring, we received a call from our midwife to tell us that they had been unable to get a clear view of his face, that it looked possible that he had a cleft lip and or mm-hmm. palate, but they weren't sure. And so they wanted us to go to a higher risk hospital in the downtown core and have another high resolution and possibly a 3D ultrasound okay. to check. I started freaking out of right course, away, yes. running through all of the scenarios. I think any mom would, but also as an Enneagram six, I was oh, like yes. spinning out all over the place and like already preparing for when he was like six and going to school. Let me ask you this. At that point, did you have any idea like what that actual phrasing even meant? Had you experienced this, come across people, maybe parents who'd gone through this? Like what was your sort of reference point, even in just hearing the words cleft lip or cleft palate? I had almost no reference. One of the weird things that has happened is that a couple months before that, I had read a book that was like some book about midwives. It was a fictional story. And in the end of the book, the midwives start to get worried because they're having this like scary delivery. And then they think that the baby might have a cleft lip when they've felt inside. And then the baby is born with a cleft lip and the mother loves her or him right away. And so that that was like really it. And then later in hindsight, I realized that I had gone to school in elementary school with a boy who had a cleft lip. But when he had told us about this scar, he had just said I was born with a split lip and the doctors fixed it. That was it. So as an adult, I hadn't clicked those two things Mm -hmm. together until later, having gone through things with our littlest. Gotcha. Okay. So going back to that moment, even just the hint that like this could be going on. And again, like you said, as most parents would kind of start spinning out about what this could possibly mean. Right. So they booked us to go downtown and we went to the hospital and had a scan done. He still wasn't cooperating for them. So it took like a really long time and they had me like drinking cold water and going for walks and they were trying to move him so they could see his Mm -hmm. face. And they ended up moving me into another room, I think, so that I could have a 3D scan because they just weren't able to see anything clearly. And then the ultrasound technician took what she had and went to a radiologist and the radiologist came back after reviewing and confirmed he was fairly certain a cleft lip and palate. They weren't sure about the severity, like it can occur in a bunch of different combinations. So they weren't sure exactly what the combination was. And because it's just a surface level, they weren't 100% sure if his palate would also be affected. But based on what they were seeing, they were pretty sure that it would be in some way. Okay. For those who, like you, you know, prior to this happening in your family, don't have a good reference point, maybe you can explain for us and walk us through a little bit about what exactly is happening when we talk about cleft lip and cleft palate. Cleft lip and palate is one of the most common, they call it a birth defect, that occurs in pregnancy. It occurs in the baby in the first six to 10 weeks of gestation. The components that make up the head, those two soft spots, so the parts that come together to fuse 
the head together. The lip and palate have not fused properly. And so there's a space in the space. The cleft is what is left. I've read different statistics. I think the U.S. statistics are like one in 600 births are cleft affected. The Canadian stats I found are one in 1,000. So somewhere in there, it does also depend on genetics and environmental factors. Most babies born with cleft lip and palate are otherwise healthy with no other syndromes or defects present, but some babies also have clefts that are a part of a syndrome. Okay. So they are able to clarify for you a little bit at this ultrasound that they could confirm a cleft lip, but they weren't sure, of course, because yeah, they couldn't get into his mouth to see if there was something happening with the palate. Right. So then normally they would take someone who has had something show up like that straight to the genetics counseling team. But for some reason, they were really busy that day. And so we had to go home and then come back the next day to meet with the genetics team and talk over what it means, um, what exactly it is, and have more details from people who specialize in prenatal diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so we went home (laughs) with more questions than answers. And then I think as we were leaving, my husband said, we need to call people and like ask them to pray for us because he could see that my anxiety was starting to get a little bit crazy. Oh, yeah. And I had the opposite reaction. I wanted to like go home, crawl into bed, not talk to anybody. Mm. I didn't want him to tell anyone anything. I said, like, we don't even know what we're dealing with. I just wanted to pretend it wasn't right. happening. Yeah. So he did call people. And in hindsight, I'm really glad that he had asked people to pray for us just to hold us in their thoughts. I'm thankful that he did that. He was right. I was not right to want to curl up in a I ball. Think everybody responds to unexpected news, scary news. If you don't have, like you said, you went home with more questions than anything else. So that's a scary feeling. I think our responses are totally on a spectrum when it comes to that, for sure. I myself, again, this is probably my Enneagram nineness. I also probably would have wanted to go straight to bed and just like, not say a word until I had it all figured out and I could present people with like, this is what's happening and this is what we're going to do. Nobody freak out. (laughs) Yes, I totally resonate with that. Yeah, yeah. So we went back to the hospital the next day and we met with a genetics team and they were able to explain more about how cleft lip and palate can present and based on the ratios of how it occurs in girls and boys, because there is a higher ratio of boys affected just by cleft lip and a higher ratio of girls only affected by cleft palate. Interesting. And then it's more common for boys to be affected by both than it is for girls. So they talked over that with us and why they thought that our son, he was diagnosed with a bilateral cleft lip and palate, which means that in two places, his lip did not fuse together. And in two places going straight back, basically where the nostrils are, his palate did not fuse together and it went straight through the hard palate, which is where your tongue can touch the roof of your mouth, straight back to the back of his throat through his soft palate. This is your fourth pregnancy. You've just Mm -hmm. been kind of going through, not expecting for anything like this to come up in the prenatal testing. I would love for you to say a little bit more about your own processing of this. Maybe even just walk us through the rest of the pregnancy then, how you processed it, if it was different if it continued to be a little different from how your husband processed through things. And then how did you go through the process of sharing with family and friends? You know, I imagine it's a thing where you're both navigating your own emotions, but also preparing your community for what to expect when at birth and beyond. So after I moved through like the sadness and not wanting to talk to anyone about it, 
I got really mad and I was just so frustrated that we would have, I don't know, there was part of me that was like, of course we would have three healthy babies and then we would get one that Mm, wouldn't be healthy. It doesn't line up with what I believe about God to be loving and just and merciful, but I just was so mad. I knew at the time that it could be worse, but so many people would tell me, oh, it could be worse or they'll fix him and it'll be okay. I just hated hearing that because I needed to grieve the loss of the things that I was going to lose with this baby because he wasn't going to be able to breastfeed or nurse the way that my other three had. I didn't know what feeding him would look like. I didn't know if he would have hearing loss. And in that span of time where we were waiting to find out if it was part of a syndrome, I didn't know if we were dealing with a syndrome which could result in other defects or unfortunately also infant Mm. loss. It could be worse and people were right that it could be worse. But hearing that at the time that I was going through the grief just didn't help. And it made me feel like my grief didn't matter or that the things that I was losing kind of like nullified what I was feeling. And I needed to get to that point on my own and not have people just try to brush it under the rug. And I also hated hearing they'll fix him when he's like older. They have great surgeries now because I didn't feel like my baby was broken. and so. There was something that was like not the way it was supposed to be, but he didn't feel broken to me. And so hearing that, and I was so worried for how people would react when he was born because he was going to look different. I was nervous that I maybe wouldn't bond with him the way I had bonded with my other three, like straight out the gate, because it felt superficial to like think that because he looked different, I might not love him the same. But there was a bit of fear in that itself. And I don't know. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. I'm just sitting here thinking about how this would open up a whole spectrum, a whole variety of emotions. I was thinking about, you know, a phrase that I started seeing used like kind of in social media and other discussions is this idea of like toxic positivity, where it just comes about as a result of our culture's strong discomfort with being with somebody who's hurting or grieving or sad and just really trying to get to the happy and skip the whole process of working through sad emotions. And, you know, I'm sure that the people in your life had the best of intentions in trying to, you know, sort of like cheer you up or encourage you. But sometimes that can tip over into something that is really quite damaging because like you said, you were actually grieving your idea, your dreams of what this fourth child would be like about parenting him and about what his future might look like is such a symptom of a bigger problem that we have of this complete lack of awareness and understanding of how to be with somebody who's going through a really painful time. Right. As you begin to kind of work through this, kind of what does it look like as the months unfold? And again, you know, how was your husband dealing with all of this? Just kind of help us see what the picture of your family looked like at the time. So I continue to have appointments They sent us to our sick kids hospital, which is downtown Toronto, to meet with the cleft team that we would be assigned so that they could go over how I would feed him. Because the palate was involved, he wouldn't be able to create the section required for both a normal bottle or for breastfeeding. And so they showed us the special Haberman bottle, which involves squeezing the nipple instead of sucking. And they talked about what we could expect because after he was born, two weeks later, we would be going to the hospital every two weeks to have an orthodontic plate fitted for him, which is basically like a baby retainer. And they would adjust it every two weeks to help bring everything that had been separated and pushed out of the way 
together so that he would be prepared for the surgery that would follow that to start closing the class. That's a lot to prepare for. You have three other children at home. You're going to have a newborn in it two weeks when, you know, I mean, things you kind of have gotten through, even in the regular birth situation at two weeks, you're kind of like in the trenches where the baby's fully, you know, waking up to the world and you're just in the weeds of newborn care. And now you're going to be going in for appointments and all of this added care for him, which of course, you know, I'm sure you are on the one hand thankful to have it. On the other hand, my goodness, that's a lot of logistics to start navigating right away. Right. And bottle feeding was completely new to me because my previous three had all breastfed, even just bottles, which it sounds so silly, but I was like, I don't know how to like wash bottles and prepare bottles. I hoped that I would be able to pump for him. And so then I was like, how do I travel with a pump? And like, all of that was like brand new fourth time round. And then my husband was just like, he was so supportive. And I've asked him later, like, were you just putting on a brave front for me? Or were you worried? But he is just the type of person that was like, well, I can't change anything. We'll just keep walking this path and we'll take it as it comes, which was great to have as a support at my side. And he totally was there for me as I asked him my questions or like went through my own grief. So it was great to have him. And thankfully, this didn't present as part of a syndrome. So it was just a random anomaly. We didn't have to switch our care from midwifery care into a doctor. So I was able to keep the care that I had had the previous pregnancy. And I had had the same midwife with my other boys as well. And so I just felt so comfortable with her and I didn't want to leave her care. And I was able to stay in that up until my 37th week, which is when my blood pressure spiked. And then I had to be induced early. Mm, yeah. My blood pressure had actually just stayed under the number that would have meant a transfer of care. And so I ended up having the midwife who delivered one of my other boys. And then as her backup, the other midwife who had delivered my other oh, boy wonderful. were my team for this pregnancy. And it was like, I couldn't have asked. They were the dream oh, team. That's so great. I'm sure that was so comforting in the midst of a time with so many uncertainties to have care providers who have walked with you through birth before who you trusted and, you know, at least have the comfort and familiarity of that care relationship happening, even though you knew there was going to be so many unexpected things to come. And the hospital was so great about recognizing my relationship with them and wanting to keep whatever would keep me calm and consistent through birth. And so she said, the OB that was on call said, as long as your blood pressure stays under this number, you don't need to transfer care. And if you have to transfer care, I am happy for the midwives to deliver the baby with me overseeing what's going mm -hmm. on. And so it was such an amazing team to have just be so concerned about what was best for my like emotional and mental well-being and for the baby and also like physical well-being. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. And sadly, sometimes such a rarity, especially when there is some kind of high risk aspect to a birth. Sometimes I don't blame care providers for this. They're trying to do the best for everyone involved, but sometimes it can get so focused on, let's just get a safe birth outcome. And then the holistic care of the mom is kind of, you know, relegated to a lower priority. So it sounds like they really looked at the whole picture as they were mm -hmm. preparing for and getting ready for birth in your situation. Okay, so let's go to that moment of birth. How did all of that play out? And how was it in some ways the same, in some ways different from the birth of your other children? 
because I had to be induced at 37 weeks, I was a little bit terrified because my first I had also been induced with, but I was 42 weeks overdue (laughs) with her. It was a pretty bad birth experience, but it wasn't as terrible as it could have been. And so induction had, there was a lot of fear for me around that. So they did everything they could to like try to get my body to do what it had done two previous times on its own. So they induced me at 37 weeks because my blood pressure was high and he came relatively quickly from that. He was born. He was the cutest, sweetest little thing. He was tiny because I was 37 weeks. And so he was the smallest of my four. He was 5'11 and he had this little cry and these tiny little hands. And I was instantly in love with him. Any fears that I had about not like, I don't know, loving him just completely washed away. And I was just overcome with this fierce, protective love for him. The team was so great. They had a pediatric doctor come in just to make sure that everything was clear, that his lungs were clear and he sounded fine to make sure that they didn't have to rush him anywhere because they didn't think I was high risk, but they just wanted to make sure. And then as I was waiting for them to clean things up and move me into mother and baby, one of the nurses on that floor had heard that a baby with cleft lip and palate had been born. And so she knocked at the door and she said, I was just wondering if I could come in for a minute. And she came in and she said, I just wanted to let you know that I have a son and he was born with cleft lip and palate 20 years ago and you're going to be okay. And the doctors are going to do amazing things and he will be great. And she pulled out like her purse and had like all of her photos of her son growing up. And she was like, this is my boy now. He's 20. He's in university. And I wish I had a baby picture to show you, but I just, I had to meet you because I've been there too. Oh my gosh. That is so amazing. What a complete blessing really to have a person who like just in the moments after you'd given birth, who could come in and be like, let me be here with you. I've been there. Things are going to work out. What a gift. Yeah. And actually there would be more, which was crazy. So they moved me into mother and baby because they wanted to make sure that he would feed properly and that he would gain weight properly. In Canada, I don't know if this is the same in the US, but if you have a midwife birth that's uncomplicated, you can go home after four hours. So I had done that with one of my boys, but I couldn't do that with this one. So I stayed in the hospital and I was in a ward with other women. And in the middle of the night, the woman next to me was like, I I don't know, this baby's not feeding. And she had called the nurses and just something wasn't like, working properly for them. So the nurses said, we're just going to take her to the nurse station and see if we can try to get her eat. Maybe she just needs a change of scenery or something. So they took her to the nurse station and I could hear it through the screen that they had pulled over. And then about 30 minutes later, they brought her back and they said, we have to double check and have a pediatrician come in, but we just want to let you know that we think your daughter was born with a cleft palate. Oh my gosh. That's why she's not feeding properly because she can't suck. So we're going to go find the bottle that they have in the neonatal area and bring it to you and see if that Mm. works better. And so the bottle has like five different pieces and they weren't a hundred percent sure how to put it together because they don't specialize in it. And so I was just like, I can help you. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's amazing. I have all of my paperwork from sick kids. So I later discovered that the woman who was next to me in the hospital, she lives in our apartment building. 
And so we've also been able to go downtown to the hospital together for different seminars because we live in the Oh my gosh. I just like, what are the chances? Seriously, how amazing how all of these. So you had an unexpected diagnosis, but then all of these other unexpected things of like how, you know, people kept getting worked into your life who were there to kind of be like, we can go through this together. I've been there or we're discovering all of this together. That is so incredible. I love it. So powerful. Do you want to just kind of give us maybe a little bit of an overview of what care for him looked like going forward, what the next steps looked like? You don't have to give us the total ins and outs, but just kind of maybe the overview of what happened from birth forward. Okay. So I took pictures of him when he was born as the cleft team had asked so that they could see what they were dealing with. And then they started to set up our appointments for us. So about two weeks born, I went downtown with my husband and they fitted him. They did a mold for an orthodontic plate, which we went back to have fitted as they brought things together every two weeks. That had to be taped to his face because he doesn't have teeth to like click a retainer into. So he would have this retainer taped on the outside of his face. And then he also had a special tape, which was helping to push everything into alignment for when they closed the clefts for his lip surgery, which would be his first surgery. So we did that for the first six months. And then at six months, he had a lip surgery to close the lip clefts. We stayed overnight, I think just one night. Actually, no, we stayed two nights because he wouldn't eat after Hmm. his surgery. We also saw an audiologist in that time just to make sure that his hearing was okay because cleft babies are often have hearing issues because ear canal can't drain properly. Yeah, okay. Some babies have more hearing loss than others. And sometimes it just sort of fixes itself as the surgeries progress. So we had his lip surgery at six months. And then we had a few other appointments between six months and a year just to check up and make sure things were going and that teeth were coming in in the right place. Because of the cleft in his gum line, teeth can come in in wonky orders and also in strange places. And so they just wanted to make sure nothing was causing any issues. And then about a year, we were just over a year, but about a year they do the palate surgery which is where they close the roof of the mouth. So for our son, he had a complete bilateral cleft palate. So basically when you looked into the roof of his mouth, you could see his nasal cavities. So they had to bring the little tissue that was there on the roof of his mouth together, like just bring it together. And then we were in the hospital for two nights for that one. He had to wear armbands after both surgeries so that he wouldn't touch anything. So he walks around with little straight arms. Oh gosh. Oh, I bet that was so hard. I know. After the palate surgery, he was only able to have pureed food for six weeks, I think it was. Now we are post both of those surgeries and he still has mild hearing loss, but they're not concerned. They had put tubes in his ears when he had his palate surgery just to help with drainage. For now, we just treat him like a typical baby, watch his teeth and make sure that they don't causing any issues see a speech pathologist just to make sure that his speech will be okay because the palate is so involved in speech development. He's a tiny bit behind on speech, but he's also the fourth. So I'm not really concerned (laughs) at this point. (laughs) And then we'll have another surgery when he's around eight. They'll do a bone graft to close the gaps in his gum line. Then we'll just see from there what he needs, whether he wants 
anything like sometimes cleft lip and palate babies can have a very flat nose. So sometimes they'll do rhinoplasty for that. From here on, we just take it as it comes and see what he needs. That is an incredible story of really just walking through from complete and total shock and surprise to now it's like part of your family's story and part of your family's life. Thank you, first of all, truly, thank you for walking us through that. As you and I were talking about your story, you did mention this is one of the most common outcomes for birth that can be unexpected. The statistics, I think you said one in 700 to one in 1000 range. It's a very, very common thing, but it's not really something that we really kind of shine a spotlight on or talk about. So first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story of this and how this has looked in your family's life. I'm wondering before we wrap up, as you look back over this whole experience, which I know you're definitely still living parts of it right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> but looking back to that moment when you had your 20-week ultrasound until now, what are some things that have kind of changed you? And then sort of advice or wisdom or guidance would you offer to anyone who's listening who's maybe going through this very situation themselves or is dealing with something that was unexpected and is in the midst of processing and walking out what is going on in their lives? Okay, so for the how it's changed me, I would say that there are two main ways. And the first one would just be being comfortable with people in their grief and not being so concerned about having the right thing to say. Sometimes just saying, I'm so sorry, is really all that's needed because that conveys your compassion and that you're there for that person. And there are practical ways that you can reach out to help, but I don't have to try and come up with some sort of like you said, toxic positivity to lift them up. Sometimes just sitting in that grief with them is just what they need. And so I feel a lot more comfortable about that. It also really strengthened my faith in ways that I was unprepared for. I was so mad at God in the beginning, feeling like, of course, I would have three babies that were fine and then one that would have something. But then seeing all the little moments in hindsight that I feel like God brought together to bring good out of a situation I don't feel like God causes our pain or makes something happen to people, but it's part of living in a fallen and broken world. So God has used what has happened to us to bring people into our lives that we wouldn't have known. I've formed relationships with other women who have walked this same journey that we have, like just behind us or just ahead of us. And there are so many ways that God brought people into our life or was there for us that I just couldn't have expected at the time of our diagnosis. When Nick was born, my husband was actually unemployed. And so for the first six months of his life, he wasn't working. Um, he was looking for work, but he didn't have a job. But we were provided for. We had people rallying around us to help us. My husband being home for six months meant that I was able to try and pump for Nick. And I was able to establish that sort of routine. Because if I had had four kids at home, by myself, there's no way that I would have even been able to attempt pumping for him. I was able to go to those doctor's appointments every two weeks because he was home with the kids. We don't have family that live super close. His mom still works and my mom is about an hour away. So we didn't have family support. Even something like being unemployed, which sounds terrible, was actually such a blessing in hindsight. Like that woman who at the hospital had been sitting next to me and now lives in my building just little things like that. 
I had actually also been a bridesmaid for my friend six days before my son was born, but I didn't know that he was going to be born six days later. And so just being able to do things, having those two midwives that were so special to me be like the dream team to deliver him. There were just so many small details that made me feel like God saw me in what we were walking through and was there for me. That is so incredible. And sometimes it really takes a little bit of time and distance to be able to look back and be like, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize it at the time, but this was all working out. Yeah. So there's a bit of surrender that I think I've also learned from this experience. And sometimes like I had like hindsight of a few months and sometimes it'll be longer than that. It'll be a few years. And then for advice for other people who might be walking through something similar, I think reaching out for help to the people who are going to be safe, either in your life or there are so many support groups for so many different things online now. So finding people who have walked through what you've walked through or who will be there for you and just let you grieve and then being okay with needing to grieve. I knew that this was not the worst thing that could happen to us or to happen to our son, but I did need to grieve the loss of the things that I did lose and the dreams that I had previously thought I would have. And so it's okay to need to grieve those things and to let yourself grieve those things so that you can move forward. Yeah, so true. And I think too, sometimes, again, because people around us may not be comfortable, I think if you are able to express to people like, I appreciate your encouragement. I just, I'm still in a place where I'm really sad about things. You know, thank you for reaching out. But really to verbalize it can sometimes help people understand where you are in the process too. Oh my goodness, Francis, this was so good, so powerful. And just one of those stories, the whole reason that I wanted to do a story series over the summer is because I know that every single one of our awesomes, every one of you all have a story. And in sharing these stories with each other, there is so much connection and so much room for growth and learning. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come and tell this whole story for us. It's been very powerful to hear. Thank you so much for having me. If people want to follow up with you and connect with you, maybe to talk about your story or talk about how awesome Toronto is or (laughs) anything like that, where's the best place that we can find you? Well, I'm in both the Superstar Hangout and the Sorta Awesome Hangout. And also you can find me on Instagram as Francis Noid, N-O-D. Okay, perfect. We'll have links for Francis's Instagram in the show notes so that you can find her and connect with her. And then, like she said, you know, we are always talking about all kinds of things in the Hangout. So she'll be around in there. Awesome. So, you know, you can find me on social media at Sorta Awesome Meg. You can find the show over on Twitter at Sorta Awesome Pod. And you can find us anytime on Facebook at facebook.com slash Sorta Awesome. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see y'all next time. Sorta Awesome was created and is hosted by me, Meg Teets. Sarah Robertson is our assistant producer and production collaboration comes from Kelly Gordon and Rebecca Hoffer. Kelly Gordon is our digital media producer and we are so thankful for the ongoing support from our listener supporters. Music is provided by the band Prager. You can find more of Prager's music at pragermusic.com. To find show notes on this and every episode of Sorta Awesome, and also to spread the Sorta Awesome love to all of your friends, you can head on over to sortaawesomeshow.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.